Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined as always by my childhood friend Chris Dow. Fields of plenty. And my adulthood friend Minty Booth. The plant seems interested in fruits. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! So, the question on all of our lips is what is next for our three cents after we reveal our favourite video games of all time. Well, the good news is lots. There is lots to come as we evolve the podcast to cater to a post-countdown world. First things first, uh, we are going to be taking a little break to let the dust settle. Then we'll be back with a slight rebrand. Now that we're finishing our three cents, our top 300, or three top 100 lists, <laughs> you can find uh, a, a brand new website, which is going to be coming soon under the new name O3C. It's very similar, but shorter. There's going to be loads and loads of great stuff on the website. Uh, we're going to be launching it very, very soon. So stay tuned for more information, but there's going to be an archive of everything we've done so far. There's going to be loads of stuff coming and then we'll be hot to trot with what is essentially season 3.5, which we're calling O3C The Addendum. You'll have heard us say numerous times throughout the run of the show that there's games we played uh, that we wished could have been on our lists, but because we decided uh, to draw a line under our top 100 when we started the show, we couldn't well can just start jiggling the lists around willy or indeed nilly mm. uh, to cater for whatever we were playing that week. And uh, that is what the addendum is going to be all about. We're going to reflect on the games that we've discovered in the last few years and we'll be going about trying to crowbar them into our lists, which means we're going to have to say goodbye to some games and reappraise the positions of some of the games as well. I mean, looking at just my list of games that I've played since starting the show, I could possibly sub out half of my top hundreds <laughs> to cater for them. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be really, really fun. A uh, really good juggling act as we try to keep up with ourselves and our playing habits to continue to refine our definitive top hundred favorite video games of all time. And of course, we're going to continue to chat about the games we're playing, answering questions from you lovely listeners, continuing everything you love about the show. We are also very busy hatching plans for what comes after the addendum for season four. And we will keep you updated with those plans in the Junus, of course. But as a little teaser, we'll be getting our objective hats on to revisit and analyze the best games of the different generations, looking at the best video game soundtracks. We're even going to be developing our own video game in-house. There's just so much to look forward to and do. And uh, well, we can't wait to do it and uh, share it all with you. As of the end of this series, we're also going to be adjusting how we're structuring our Patreon page. Uh, First of all, just want to say an enormous thank you to those Patreon subscribers who have been backing us. I I would say it's been invaluable, but it's actually just been very specifically valuable. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And it's allowed us to expand the podcast, help set us on course to develop the show even further in the future. So a huge thank you from us to you. Andy Smith, Gene Limbrick, CJ Anderson, Debbie Booth, Guy Lockhead, Jasper Blackiter, David Boys Layton, Darren Hughes, Rob Wade, Nathan Bain, Chris Walker, Sam Roberts, Alex Dunn, and Ross Ewing. The new Patreon link is www.patreon.com slash O3C podcast. It's it's the same Patreon page, so don't worry if you're already you don't need to sign up again. But we are basically going to be opening up everything to everyone. Uh, so if you're 
backing any of the tiers, uh, you get access to all the Patreon exclusive bonus episodes, the deleted scenes, the outtakes, access to the Discord channel, just the whole shebang. And if you are so inclined, you can also back us on the higher tiers if you're feeling generous. Uh, you, you, you won't get anything extra, but what we wanted to do was be able to cater to anyone's financial position and not leave people, you know, missed out. So do head over to that link, have a look and see if you fancy pledging to any of the tiers, and hopefully we'll see you in the Discord very soon. And for those of you who don't want to be tied down to a pesky, clingy, and uh, frankly <laughs> needy subscription, uh, we will also be open to one-off donations. And uh, soon, and this is very exciting, you're actually even going to be able to buy a beautiful collector's set of the first three seasons of the show covering all the top 100 episodes, all the bonus episodes, all the Patreon exclusive episodes uh, as well in a lovely box set complete with just collectible art cards. Mm. That's that's a thing that I'm committing to. <laughs> uh, and uh, we will, of course, be keeping you updated with those details when they become available. Um, and yeah, they'll be lovely. Love it. It'll look lovely on your shelf. It'll look, it'll look lovely on all of our shelves. <laughs> Can't wait. So we're here to tell you what our favourite video games of all time are. I mean, for many people, I'd say for... How many people are in the world? <laughs> Seven billion. Minus three people. This is the sort of conversation you just have in the pub. Uh, what's your favourite video game, mate? Uh, oh, you want three years leading up to it? A fanfare? Mm. A bloody branding, filming, <laughs> recording extravaganza? Yes. Because that's how much we love video games. And we're going to be telling you what our favourite video games are. Uh, but first, but first, obviously, there's some unfinished business in the realm of the O3C quiz. After an unprecedented 50-all draw in the, the first phase, we then expanded into a second phase with my House of Games style quiz rounds. And it's, it's ended up... I don't want to say the word unprecedented too many times. It's but absurd. It is absurd. Chris has got a one-point lead going into the finale, and there's plenty of points on offer. So it really is anyone's game as we go into the O3C quiz finale. It's been neck and neck, but Chris is a little taller. <laughs> I'm terrified. I'm genuinely terrified to do this final round. I will feel... Very upset if my, I lose. My heart rate is a buzz. <laughs> and speaking of a buzz, it's we like... also have a buzzer. Now, I did buy two buzzers. And as you would expect from buying a set of two buzzers, you would expect them to make two different sounds. They don't. Um, <laughs> so I've got this one here. For those watching on the video, you can see... It's going to be not impossible for me to tell, <laughs> using my ears alone, who gets in there first. So uh, I've decided to sub out Minty's buzzer for, uh, as you would expect, a Tibetan singing bowl. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. That will help me. Uh, that will help me differentiate between them. Uh, so are you guys ready? Are you guys ready to go into the finale of the quiz? I'm not really, but I have to be. <laughs> quiz. question what's the best part of a musical it's not a question for the quiz that'll be, that'll be a okay. bit of a curveball uh the best the part of a musical is the end yeah. where you get a mega mix of all the songs from the show 
So what I've prepared is a quiz mega mix uh, oh to serve as the oh final boy. deciding round. There are 10 questions and I'm going to be revisiting <clears throat> all the different round types from the last season of quizzing. This is going to be great. Uh, oh. There is also a tiebreaker round just in case you end up tied at the end of this too. Here we go. Question one is a revisitation of the hose of games. <laughs> so I've taken a letter out of a video game title and I'm going to give you a description of that video game. Here's a bit of a twist for this one. I've actually taken two letters out of this one. Oh, boy. And as a clue, this is a game from one of your lists. Ah. A legendary simulation video game designer is absolutely furious. Oh, that sounds like Minty. Sid Vicious. No, that no, I, I haven't. I okay, haven't a well, unfortunately, okay, well, the answer is not Sid Meier's Pirates, it's Sid Meier's Irate. Oh, god, uh, see, I knew it, I, I knew it was Sid Meier, which is why I said Sid, Sid Vicious. vicious. Yeah, Never, uh, okay, well, I'll there we go, there we go. Great. Right, come on, um, come on, cut all that out. Right. Uh, question two, Super Synonym Brothers. I've replaced the words of a video game title with synonyms, okay? Which Great. game is this? Okay. As a clue, it's a game from one of your lists. <laughs> yeah. Fresh Celestial Kickball. <gasps> Minty. New, new Star Soccer. That is the correct oh! answer. My goodness. Yes. We're now neck and neck. The points are neck and neck. <laughs> and Chris is about to have some sort of conniption. A coronary event. <laughs> <laughs> Question three. Fuck. Games House of... Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question and you need to give the answer in alphabetical order. Okay. okay? The Birdman is the nickname of the titular sportsman in this video game franchise. <laughs> Minty. Hawks Pro Skater Tony. That is the correct <laughs> answer. My goodness, Minty has gone one point ahead. Okay. Thank you for your belief in me. <laughs> Here we go. Question four. The round is Midway Games. You remember this one where uh, I yeah. basically, yes. I, I put together a list of every game of a console and you had to try and tell me what game was near the most near the middle of the list. There are 4,057 games on the Nintendo Switch. Oh my goodness. What is the middle game in my alphabetized list? I'm going to go for uh, Paper Mario, the Origami King. Okay. I'm going to go for New Star Manager. Well, the correct answer is... Jet Lancer, which means the point goes to Minty. No! Who's closer? And now you've got a two-point lead. No! <laughs> well, this is very exciting. Okay. This isn't. <laughs> Absolutely livid. Chris Dow's irate. Okay. Oh, Question five. God. Mouse of games. Yeah. Change I've changed the letter, the letter change of a video game title, and this is a description of that game. As a clue, it's a game on one of your lists. <laughs> The smallest policeman helps out the legendary hero of time in this handheld adventure RPG. Oh. Minty Booth. Legend of Zelda, the Minish Cop. That is the correct... This is extraordinary. This is what not an absolute comeback. Minty has got a three-point oh. lead. <gasps> Question six. Opposites attract. I've replaced the words of a title of a video game with their antonyms. Dreadful, Bowser, stay at home. Oh, Super Mario Odyssey. That's correct. I might as well put the buzzer down. Minty is now... Very smug. I'm got, so embarrassed. Got a four-point lead. I'm so embarrassed. Okay, <laughs> right. Well, the good news is there are uh, three points up for grabs with this next question. Because this is a wag's opinion. So <laughs> I, I have asked Mrs. Minty, Georgia, 
and Mrs. Dunn to give me a, a description of a video game which has featured on two of our lists. First <coughs> clue, Sammy, my wife, says this game is an epic adventure for two dyslexic friends, a big cat and a fire-breathing monster. I don't think we need to get it from the first one. Okay. Two of our lists. Clue number two comes from Georgia. This game involves pillaging, hoarding gold, and burning humans to a crisp until you are conscripted into the army, work your way up to officer status, only to be killed by an infected anaconda fang. <laughs> nope. Okay. Finally, Mrs. Minty says, in this game, you play as an endearing cartoon pirate dragon to fight enemies across the seven seas and collect power-ups along the way. Oh, Chris? It's not. You're not going to lose a point. That is the yeah. correct answer. Oh, fucking hell. Oh, well done. <laughs> One point. One point. One, One point. miserable point. One point. Okay. Minty's still got a three-point lead. So if Chris gets these three... You will be tied. There are only three left. There's three left. Oh. Um, question eight. Tag the line. I'm going to give you the tagline of a video game, and you've got to tell me what game it is. This was around where neither of you got a single one right when we did it in the actual <laughs> show, so here we go. Here we go. Which game is this the tagline to? Explore nine worlds and 96 levels of non-stop action. Chris Dow. Super Mario World. That's the correct answer. Oh, oh my well God. done. Oh, this is insane. Oh, what are you doing? I, I actually have like a tingle on my arms for that one. Here we go. Two questions left. Number nine, the big numbers game. I gave you a thing and you had to have a guess at how many of that thing it was and whoever got closest got a point. Yeah. So in the spirit of this season being our top tens, the top 10 best selling games of all time are Minecraft, Grand Theft Auto 5, Tetris, Wii Sports, PUBG, Super Mario Brothers, Pokemon Generation 1, Mario Kart 8, we fit and Tetris again, apparently. <laughs> Putting all of those figures together, how many copies have been sold of all of those games? I'm going to say 720 million. 720 million. 950 million. Oh, that is so close because it's directly between them. Oh. The correct answer is 878,750,000. And Chris me. gets the point. Oh, oh. my God. <laughs> This is insane, boys. This is insane. Whew. Okay. Oh. Minty has a one-point lead. If he gets this question right, he wins. If Chris gets it right, it's going to a tie-break. This is like the worst penalty shootout. <laughs> and, and, and I love a penalty shootout. You love a penalty shootout. <laughs> the goalie's about to come up to take a kick. Come with Again. the hair. <laughs> Final question. Whew. Sometimes words hurt. This was the round where I read you a negative review or a clip of a negative review of a game from one of your lists and you have to tell me what game they're describing, okay? Mm -hmm. This is the quote. Very disappointing. You can only move in eight directions. The magic of roaming around and exploring a landscape has disappeared into little vignettes of uninspiring micro lands. This game was on both of your lists. Oh. <gasps> Uh, uh, um, oh, the fuck's it called? Uh, it's the Mario game that came with Bowser's Fury. It's Super Mario 3D World. 3D, yes. 3D World. It is 3D World. That's the correct answer. Oh! <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my God. Right, okay. There's a tiebreaker. You're going to take it in turns to name a game from my list. The first person to get one wrong loses. Oh. Chris, to start. Okay. Name a game. Jurassic Park on the Game Boy. Jurassic Park on the Game Boy, correct. Panzer Dragoon Saga. Panzer Dragoon Saga, correct. 
uh, Link's Awakening. Link's Awakening, correct. The Wind Waker. Correct. Hyrule Warriors. Correct. Shining the Holy Ark. Correct. Metroid Prime. Correct. Clockwork Knight 2. Correct. Very good. Lego Harry Potter. Correct. Super Mario Sunshine. Correct. The End is Nigh. Correct. The Witness. Correct. Animal Crossing New Leaf. Correct. Pokemon Gold. Correct. Super Mario Maker. Correct. Super Mario Odyssey. Correct. Pokemon Blue. Correct. Pokemon Ultra Sun. That is correct. I wouldn't be confident. The Pokemons I'm not confident with because I can't remember which ones you chose each time. King's Quest Mask of Eternia. Chris, that's not the name of the game. What's it called? King's Quest Eight: Mask of Eternity. Oh, no. Oh, what a way to go out. But there we go. The winner of the O3C quiz after three years is Minty Booth. Congratulations, Minty. What an absolute moment. I don't have a trophy to give you because I assumed the victory would be enough. That's okay. Your stunned disbelief is more than enough adulation for me. Maybe we should have done this at the end because Chris is going to be weeping through the rest of this incredible finale. Oh, and I've got to talk first. To to that, I'll go. My favourite video game is who the fuck gives a shit, whatever. (laughs) Why am I even here? It's The Legend of Zelda, go fuck yourself. (laughs) When's the earliest train I can get? (laughs) There we go. So that is a wrap on the O3C quiz. Congratulations to both of you for, for playing and taking part in it because it's been a huge amount of fun. Well done, Minty. Chris, can you put it behind you? I'll have to. So here we are. This is the moment. It's time to reveal what our favourite video games of all time are. Here we go. Chris, starting with you. I can't believe that we are here at this point now after, like we said, three years. We're going to ignore the quiz. I'm not going to think about it. Three years of quiz, who cares? Three years of podcast, though, that's worth celebrating. That's worth (laughs) celebrating. And it's been three or so years of talking to you both, week in, week out, and it's really, really lovely that we are here in person after almost two years of that, being essentially a pandemic, and, and to be able to reveal our number ones together, I think is, is a really special thing to be able to do. Now, before I say anything about what is, by this list, my very favourite video game of all time, I wanted to say some heartfelt thank yous. Uh, you know, I, I've ended up just by the way we've run the show, being the first person to talk about our final games. And I thought it was really important to say a big thank you to, to everyone who has listened to the show since its inception. You know, to begin with, that was essentially friends and family. But over time, that's grown to include a whole host of other listeners worldwide. Thank you very much to anyone who doesn't know us personally for giving us a shot. And for now listening to our thoughts on basically 300 games and change, (laughs) plus everything else we played in those three years. We really do appreciate all of you. To all the Patreons past and present who hopefully are watching this this video version of the podcast, thank you for enjoying what we do enough to, to have thrown some cash our way. Your contributions have helped us maintain the project in a way that may not have been viable in the same way otherwise. And that means you've helped fund gaming purchases, uh, you've helped fund technology that we've used to, to produce things for this show, hosting, just all manner of odds and sods that have kept the podcast ticking along. But most importantly, especially given the context of where we are sat, to the two of you, Minty, when we started this show, you could have counted our interactions between one another on probably one hand, which mm. was some shared Mario Maker level codes. And that's maybe about it. I think so, yes. <laughs> and yes. and yet in the last few years, you've become a very, very dear friend. And, mm. you know, having we, we speak every week. And that's quite a big deal. That's more than I speak to most of my family. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you. And, and Jonathan, we've now played and talked games with one another for almost 25 years. <laughs> um, yeah. You are one of my oldest and closest friends, and it feels 
so good to be able to be here in person with with the two of you to share in this culmination of the last three years of our lives and friendship. Since the inception of the show, we've all had our own ups and downs in, in kind of our personal lives and everything else. And, and as well, the world has had significant ups and downs, as I mentioned, for the last two years for sure. But, and I mean this genuinely, and, and like I said, as, as heartfelt as I can make it, this show as a, as a weekly constant has been one of the things that's kept me going. And, and to hear from others out in the big bad world that it's been a comfort to them, even in some small way, it makes it all incredibly edifying. It's been a real, real treat to be part of this whole project. And obviously it is carrying on. But as this phase draws to a close, uh, you know, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it it's, it's lovely to be here. So <laughs> my number one, I remember all the way back when I was Wii and I'd buy games magazines like the official Sega Saturn magazine that I know you mm, buy yeah. from time to time, Jonathan, and uh, the computer and video games magazine. And at the time, I'd buy them not only for the reviews and coverage of, of upcoming titles, but also for the cheats. Uh, we all like uh, cheats. Uh, uh, uh. Now, I have an incredibly vivid memory of a run of Sega Power that I was given by my cousin that he'd already bought. And when he passed me sort of his hand-me-down master system, they just sort of came with the bundle. And those magazines helped me get through Castle of Illusion on the master system, which I've talked about many, 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 many weeks ago. And in that magazine, it had full maps that were built in composite from God knows how many direct captures from a CRT screen. And that helped me learn where every secret chest was hidden, every elusive one-up, every shortcut. And around that time, I remember then buying magazines in shops, sometimes solely on the promise of it having a decent cheats and tips section. There are some codes that stay with us collectively as people. So you've got things that I'm sure lots of people will recognize. The up, down, left, right, ABC, and start is the level select code for the original Sonic the Hedgehog. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA and start is the fabled Konami code that would unlock things in a, in a whole bushel of games, including uh, Contra and Gradius. And now it, it's one of those things that lives on as a weird place, you know, in pop culture, just endlessly referenced by often quite lazy writers, animators, <laughs> who else, you know. But one cheat code that has lived with me since I was about seven or eight years through my whole life now is the following. Now, I've paraphrased this slightly because I, I don't remember what it was in the magazine, but, you know, you get the gist. For unlimited shurikens, set the number of shurikens on the options screen to zero and wait about 20 seconds. The zero will turn into an infinity symbol, giving you an unlimited number of shurikens. <laughs> now that throwaway instruction, which, as I said, I've, I've kind of uh, broadly paraphrased, refers to a cheat in The Revenge of Shinobi on the Sega Mega Drive. Now that is not a game I enjoy a great deal, but it was my first exposure to the concept of infinity. And I've probably played games before that that included some sort of cheat to activate unlimited lives but here tied to that symbol that i'd refer to as the sideways eight for almost as long as child me pronounced genre genre um, <laughs> i i started to grasp the idea that something could be measureless or bottomless or somehow endlessly replenishing res <laughs> has always carried with it a sense of awe that inadvertently tapped into the idea of a cyclical, unbroken experience. And, and the story in Res is, of course, finite. You know, it's got four stages that each are punctuated by a boss. It's got a final area that has a credits role. But for me, Res has never been about this particular compartmentalized journey. And indeed, I don't think it's that for anyone that really gets it as a game. Now, Res is an experience that has lived inside me in some way since I first picked it up for the PlayStation 2 back in 2002. It is a rail shooter. So thinking, you know, like Space Harrier or Panzer Dragoon or Star Fox, you control a cursor and you shoot enemies and projectiles before they reach your avatar. 
And you can do that either with direct shots that trigger with the tap of a fire button or via chain lock-ons that let you kind of hold down the button and then sweep across up to eight targets before unleashing a blast of colorful lasers that will then chase down anything your cursor has painted. And Res always stood out to me, even from its Dreamcast roots, when I'd, saw, when I'd seen like screenshots of that, all the way through its subsequent ports, which I'll talk a lot about today, by way of its mission statement. And that was, it was attempting to explore in some way the concept and effect of synesthesia. And for anyone unfamiliar with the term, synesthesia is a condition which means some people experience something that is traditionally bound to a single sense, like an image being linked to sight. And instead it is then moved to trigger other unconnected senses. So as an early example of someone exploring this idea, the artist Kandinsky initially explored this in his painting as far back as the 1920s, attempting to translate jazz into sort of colors, shapes, and patterns. And in Res, its director, Tetsuya Mitsuguchi, was attempting to do the same with electronic dance music and the audiovisual experience of video games. Now, I love this game. And <laughs> as you've probably guessed, I love it more than any other, <laughs> as is the nature of this list. But this wasn't an immediate love. And my relationship with Res has, has really oscillated over the years because with every subsequent playthrough or re-release, it helped me to build an understanding and appreciation for this weird thing that is now placed above Animal Crossing or above The Witness or above Tetris. And as I said, by the very nature of this show and this list, it's above, frankly, every other game I've played. <laughs> now, when I first booted it up on PlayStation 2, its slim length made me feel a bit disappointed. Like in my young teens, I was drawn in by its aesthetic and its sort of highbrow concept, but I felt let down by how quickly I could beat the traditional campaign. And by the time I'd got through each stage, it was kind of just, you know, that's that, that's done. With the last level, like Area 5, the only part of the trip that gave me any trouble at all. And I think back then I traded in pretty quickly and largely just forgot about it, aside from every once in a while stumbling upon the occasional glowing editorial online in the early days of sort of the wild, wild web. But a year or so later, for some reason, I probably saw it in a shop. I picked up a replacement copy. I played through it this time a few more times and then traded it in again. <laughs> you know, gone for a second time, but this time maybe not quite forgotten. A few more years later, with the game's HD release on the Xbox 360 in 2008, I hopped in again. But this time I was able to understand a little bit more of what exactly Res was what it is and, and what it really continues to be. And booting up that time, I, I could remember some of the enemy patterns. I could remember how to take down the guardians of each zone without taking a hit. I kind of, I remembered the ebb and flow of the soundtrack and Res had started to become something that was embedded with, with the thump of the EDM backing somehow able to awaken memories of six years prior. And the added scope of playing the game at that point on a, on a 1080p big flat screen spread out far beyond my peripheries it felt like the game was beginning to evolve around the player avatar in the same way that space expands and exists far beyond our puny comprehension of the world. <laughs> and from then on, something had really changed and I started playing Res much more regularly. So at least a few times a year for the next half decade, I would play through a number of direct assault runs in the game. And this means like in the game, you can play a single stage for a high score or you can take on direct assault, which is all five stages back to back, kind of like the entire game in one, one passage. And for my money, that's sort of, it's the purest way to experience the game because each level has its own songscape and each songscape is its own journey and, and put together, it sort of, it tells the whole story of, of Res, whatever that is. Now, to liken this to sort of traditional music experiences, if you go out and see something live, whether it's, you know, a club night, whether you're watching a live band, whether you're watching a solo performance, whatever, 
they're about an undulating journey and you've got highs and lows. You might have kind of the movement of the crowd. You might have the connection that you you feel with the performers or the, or the very physical feelings you can experience when listening to and, and engaging with high tempo music or bass heavy music, extremes in volume, oppressive or subdued timbres or textures. You know, it's, it's part of seeing music is why we enjoy doing it. And with the stages of direct assault all glued together, Res delivers for me one of the most electrifying sets of music I can recall. And just as at a great show, you start to find your body moving and your toes tapping and it's it's doing it without your choice. You know, it becomes something your body just feeds into. The sheer presence of music in a space is then your body's primary driver. And, and I found that Res was increasingly able to take that control over me when I played it. If I didn't have the hour needed for direct assault though, there's still other options, like an embarrassing wealth of plenty in this game that I'd initially written off as a teen as being too slim to be worth mentioning. You can explore every stage in more detail using the score attack mode. You can place the soundtrack under more scrutiny using the beyond mode audio modifiers, which swap out some of the, the quantized sound effects, which are tied to your shots and hits. And in essence, just totally change the feeling of the songs that you may have already felt for 20 plus hours. Just, you know, you think you know something very well and a small tweak can really, really upend your whole experience. There's an adage that I've alluded to before that when you get good at a game like Tetris or similar, you start to make decisions on autopilot and your response times narrow as you play using just muscle memory rather than the traditional reactive feedback loop when you're watching things and, and it's kind of making you respond in a certain way. And what I find mind-blowing about Res is that it achieves something beyond even this. Like if I sit down and play music as a musician, whether it's guitar, drums, whatever, my actions are not just in my fingers and hands, but in a whole body and mind response. And Res isn't just a rail shooter and it isn't just a music game. It's somehow that feeling. It's, it's kind of playing something and feeling like you're very in tune with the thing you are you're making happen and what you're responding to. As kind of more of a, a gamey thing, it does have a narrative. And Res deals with sentient AI, life, death, new beginnings. There's, there's themes of evolution and enlightenment and elucidation. And yet you can ignore these chunks of more conventional storytelling because Res, when it's truly embedded to the point that I was feeling at that point, becomes a transcendental game. And, and that kind of spiritual experience you're having through all these different thoughts are just part of playing rather than kind of a, a text crawl explaining this is what, what's going on and what you're, what you're supposed to be feeling. In 2008, holding my, my Xbox 360 controller and staring at the game projected onto, you know, what was a modest screen for the time, I felt I had become Res and I was inside of Res. And yet that wasn't the last stop on the Res train. Oh, no, 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 no. Res Infinite is my number one game, the, the best version of Res. And it is likely the final variant of, of Mitsugishi's defining work. It launched almost 20 years after the initial release of the game. And it moved the game into either 4K, if you're playing on a standard screen, or into VR with a compatible headset. And fucking hell. <laughs> Fuck me. Like the, the, the jump from flat visuals, whether in 4.3, if you're going right back to the game's initial release, or in the 1080p widescreen version of the Xbox release, setting up in a, in a full 360 degree virtual space made Res feel so astonishingly, liberatingly free, despite still being based around linear rail-led paths, that I do not believe anyone in the world could play Res in VR and then argue that the flat release is better. <laughs> it, is, it blows it so comfortably out of the water. There is just no contest, no competition at all. And it becomes the best version of what was already one of the best games. Just the sense of depth and speed and being and an organic belonging in what should feel utterly alien and divorced from reality 
is unparalleled in gaming, VR or otherwise. You're still only controlling a cursor, but its movement is now so fine and it's tuned to respond to either your analog sticks or you can use motion controllers or your literal gaze that the sensation I described earlier, that transcendental feeling that you have when you become one with the game, it is then impossible to avoid. That That is playing Res. You are the game. And, and if Res had always had the ability to get under your skin, Infinite is something else entirely because entering that synesthetic world, both mentally and, and physically by lowering the headset over your eyes, you are in there, you can't get out. There's no separation anymore. You close your eyes and it's gone. You open it, it's there. You, you're in. <laughs> and, and VR and Infinite, I think, are the perfect combination. And it's absolutely startling that this is a marriage of ideas that was separated all these years by technology rather than vision because none of the initial game has changed. The resolution has changed and the ability to look around has changed. But the core of the game is no different from the Dreamcast to, to whether you're playing on any VR headset. And it becomes infinite. It is a game that feels truly infinite. And it might have been the rapid fire of Joe Musashi's shurikens in Shinobi that introduced <laughs> me to the beauty of the unbroken loop of the Ouroboros. But it's Res Infinite that expands that concept. And, you know, if you think about how the world is, is put together, maths and science, we use it to take our base understanding of everything and then let it iterate down infinitesimally into a complex inverse pyramid of interaction everything around us essentially is happening because of the initial almost binary reactions of just tiny dots but playing res it feels like traveling the opposite direction that you're expanding the core of the game you know the, the concept of interactive media and sensory experience is going ever outwards into just a soft pillowy horizon and the edges that you thought you knew start to dissolve in in hazy atmospheric perspective res infinite is a cavern that is measureless to man <laughs> and it is an experience that is quite unlike any other i've had on any platform in any game and it is literally for me the best game that i've ever played incredible that's absolutely incredible <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely wonderful i mean the way you describe it i i haven't played it and i find it hard to argue that it's not the best game <laughs> that exists uh, <laughs> surely when i first played it in vr that was a time when I had waited for a long time. Like I had ordered a physical copy. I didn't want to pay twice because I wasn't in a financial position to buy the game twice. Mm. So I had my PlayStation VR. I knew the copy was coming and it was delayed for ages. And when it finally arrived, I stayed up way too late to play through a direct assault, just the, mm. the whole game. And I came out of it just like a sweaty mess, <laughs> just like water in my eyes. And the, the headset like glued the ring across my forehead. But I, I genuinely felt at that point, it was still when VR was so fresh. It was like I had been somewhere else. I had gone mm. somewhere else for that time. And it, it doesn't dull. That experience doesn't mm. dull. To come back to it, even how well I know the game now, to play it through, it is still just as exciting. Mm. And... You know, I've kind of said that perhaps Tetris Effect could take the number one spot if we were mm. going to revise the list. You know, it's another Mitsuguchi game. It's another VR game. It explores a lot of the same ideas. But I, I do think Res does something different enough that it, it might still keep the place mm. because I, I love the the core function of Tetris. I love the, the core concept and how it builds on something really, really simple. And Effect will likely never be bettered for, for experiencing that. And yet... Res is still something that is wholly unique in itself. And even its own pseudo-sequel, Child of Eden, was not a patch on that original mm. experience. I didn't even mention that Infinite has a whole extra mode, which was, you know, essentially a pseudo-follow-on level set for, okay. for Res that, that was made 20 years into the future. And it's great, but it doesn't need to be mentioned. Yeah. It's, it's like it's, it makes a great game even greater, but it doesn't take away from just how strong the original mm. is. 
So yeah, res, res infinite. Perfect. That's brilliant. I have vague recollections from the past before the podcast of you saying not just how good res was, but I even have a memory of you saying, I think at one point that it was your favorite game, yeah. you know, but like, spoilers, yeah. <laughs> but like with any of, any of uh, these games, and I've certainly said this about my top 10, I reckon I've said it's my favorite game about all top 10 games yeah. in my list and, and others. So it, it's really, really great to, to sort of have that, but to see that that's, um, that's retained its, uh, its mm. place and its importance. Absolutely superb. Minty. We're going to now hand over to Mr. Booth, who is going to tell us about his favourite game of all time. So, my number one is a JRPG. No way, that is so (laughs) out of character for you, Minty, I did not see it coming. We all knew it was going to be, but I'd like to talk about just how I came to get this game in the first place. Growing up, I played mostly first-party Nintendo games, I was never really pointed towards that particular genre. Nintendo's falling out with Square Enix meant that I never really played Final Fantasy games when they came out. I think the closest I ever got to a to a JRPG experience up to that point was uh, Paper Mario, mm. which has appeared in my top 10. But then my sister got a PS2 for her birthday one year. Oh, Faye. <laughs> <laughs> with Kingdom Hearts, another game that's appeared on my list. And everything has snowballed from there. I bought Final Fantasy X off a friend, another game that's appeared on my list. <laughs> and suddenly my eyes were open to this genre that was bright, silly, outlandish, really fucking complicated, deep and just magical. Like Being shit at first person shooters <laughs> also meant that I needed a genre to really get good at in my friend group. So I did start looking around for JRPGs uh, in earnest which was a fairly niche genre back in the day. Most of the good ones you could get on the GameCube weren't really picked up by Western distributors, but I did start getting the early Final Fantasy remakes on the Game Boy Advance and the Nintendo DS, like Dawn of Souls, the 3D Final Fantasy III remake, Chrono Trigger, all games that have been on my list. (laughs) (laughs) And a few Dragon Quest games here and there, you know, gentle 2D fun, but what was going on in Japan? What did they have over there? (laughs) What treasures were up for the plunder? Well, loads, I found out. And they were treasure because they were really fucking expensive to to import. But let's focus on one today. We'll focus on my very, very favourite video game, Tales of Symphonia. Oh, Oh. beautiful, beautiful. Mm. Before we begin, I think, obviously, I think it is probably one of the finest video games ever made. It's certainly my favourite game. But I also think it is the perfect introduction to the genre. It's got a very deep and complex storyline, and it's got incredible uh, combat controls. And it's also incredibly simple, and it's so... It's got such a clarity of purpose. So often games like Final Fantasy and even more niche things like Disgaea they can really overwhelm you with uh, with game mechanics like the sphere grids and i mean the disguise series is basically the definition of generous post game content <laughs> and really fucking complicated menuing but tales of symphonia it is disarmingly simple and it really sucks you in to what is just an incredible story and a really really lovely experience so a quick quick backstory for the game we open up in a little school in a village called iselia we're introduced to Lloyd, Genus, Colette, and Rain, Lloyd. which is <laughs> Lloyd. 
classic uh, JRPG character name. Yeah. Here comes Nigel. <laughs> <laughs> now, do it, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> our first four protagonists that we get in our party. Rain is the teacher, older sister to Genus, and they're elves. Ooh, right. Okay. Old and wise. We learn that Colette, a human, is the chosen one who will embark on a quest to save the world. Outside of the village is the Human Ranch, where the half-elf designs put humans, the inferior beings, to gruelling hard labour for reasons unknown at this point. Genus makes a friend with an old biddy at the ranch, gets caught, and ends up having to have Lloyd come and beat up a couple of guards to help him escape which contravenes the peace treaty between the ranch and the village. So the designs come to the village and burn it to the ground and unleash like a terrible, huge pickle monster <laughs> on Lloyd and Genus. And it turns out to be the old lady that he made friends with, mutated and uncontrollable. With all that drama out of the way, Lloyd is exiled from the village and they set off to join up with Colette's world-saving team, which includes Rain the Teacher and Kratos, a mysterious mercenary. From there on, you travel across the world on this grand quest, unlocking the seals with the designs, nipping at your heels all along the way. So we get about 15 hours into this game and a lot's happened so far. Like, like I said, I'm on a quest to help the Chosen of Mana regenerate the world. We learn her real father is an angel and praying at the four seals of Silverant will grant her angelic powers to bring about world regeneration. We've seen her wrestle with the fact that becoming an angel means losing her humanity, eventually dying. She's about to complete the ritual at the Tower of Salvation and die in the process when Lloyd appeals to the angel, asking him to save his daughter. There must be something he can do, some other way. Doesn't he love her? What follows is about six or seven mental plot twists in the span of about half an hour and suddenly you realise that, loose threads aside, what could comfortably be a complete and worthwhile game is about one-sixth of the total experience you're about to undertake, or even less. If you're like me and spent the summer after your GCSEs going through the game multiple times with a fine tooth comb. The game opens up into parallel worlds, dozens of redemption arcs, betrayals, side quests, curses broken, super bosses squashed, heartbreak, lovers reconciled, hot springs, costumes, <laughs> the classic casino city, an evil regime defeated. A rather ham-fisted exploration of racism. <laughs> <laughs> Someone's not a fan of racism. Have you PC Pip there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a rather ham-fisted exploration of the R word. And not to spoil the ending, the true regeneration of the world. Turns out it was friendship all along. Hey! There is so much to talk about in this game, and as ever. I'm very hesitant to talk about it because, I mean, it's been out for nearly 20 years now. It came out in 2003. It's a fiver on Steam. Like, play it and experience it for yourself. But with that little warning out of the way, I'm going to talk about some of the characters because I think they are just wonderful. I'm not a complicated person. There is there's one thing that I love in any kind of media, and that's a good redemption story. My favourite film character is Darth Vader for that very reason. And I'm not ashamed to admit that I have shed a tear multiple times at his final redemption in Return of the Jedi and at some of the emotional scenes in some of the um, blockbuster by numbers that Marvel are putting out. But some of the characters in this game are, they're really great. You've got Lloyd, who is 
He's thick as shit, <laughs> but he's got a good heart. Oh. He's a, he's a gentle idealist. Oh. He's a boorish general on the battlefield. Mm. He's tough as nails. And he draws people around him together for the common goal of saving everybody and making a world where nobody feels left out. Thick, Ooh. but smart at heart. <laughs> yes. Head smart, no. Heart smart, yes. <laughs> No, he's, a, he's, an, he's an eloquent speaker as well. You, you have to be to uh, rally people to your cause. But as an example, he thought that having two swords meant that he did twice as much damage. That makes sense. I've got a, a, a new um, food processor with two blades. Double the chop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a bad example. It, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Two hammers hit two nails. Hit <laughs> <laughs> the same nail twice. <laughs> we find out that uh, Genus and Rain were half-elves themselves. And going back to that clumsy exploration of the R-word, it is the half-elves who, for centuries, millennia even, have borne the brunt of R-word abuse <laughs> in this game. So much so that they had to have one of, the, uh, one of the great spirits of the land push their city up into the sky to get away from all the R. I think you'll be safe to say it. Okay. I don't know about that. Racism. <laughs> so there's a point where you go back to your starting village, quite a, quite a fair bit into the game, and you've got the uh, the mayor there, who's uh, who's bigoted and irate, and he says, "Not only have you returned to our village, or whether after we exiled you, but the people that we thought were elves are disgusting half elves." And then the whole village rallies around you and your party by saying uh, such things as, uh, Lloyd saved me from monsters. Gina does maths that you don't even know, Mayor. The professor is scary, but when I get a question right, she's real happy. <laughs> it's just simple stuff like that that can really, really warms your heart and just makes for a really great cutscene. Next up, you've got Kratos the Mercenary, voiced by Cam Clark, who has an incredibly odd cadence. I don't know if it was his character, but if he had a paragraph of text, he would just sort of... You just sort of get quieter in the middle of the paragraph and then finish it off for every single line. <laughs> <laughs> this mysterious mercenary ends up being a 4,000-year-old half-angel leader of the evil regime that you're trying to defeat and also Lloyd's father. Oh, stop it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> So they go from, they, 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 have, they have this oh. really big uh, up and down relationship where Lloyd doesn't like him because he's older, and he's more experienced, he knows more about combat, he's cleverer, he's got a real inferiority thing. And then those plot twists that I mentioned, that's when we find out that he is one of the evil people. So you have to fight him. And then he goes off and does his, all of his evil stuff for a while. Then he comes back, you find out he's his father. And then by just, just by virtue of being near Lovely, thick, idealistic Lloyd. He sees that the evil regime is indeed evil and he comes back to the side of good. Oh, you love to see it. I really do. I really do love to see it. The thing about the human ranches is it wasn't just grueling labor for grueling labor's sake. Every character that has any combat prowess in the game has an X sphere. It's like a little ball that you put in your hand and, oh, it, yes. and it heightens your powers. Like it, it takes you beyond your limits, like, um, like One Punch Man. Right. The X-Spheres are made at the human ranches by putting humans under such duress that they basically, all of their negative experience and energy congeals into these X-Spheres. So they are basically just little balls of human suffering 
oh, hmm. Keep it light. Yeah, yeah. Heavy. That's a theme that's gone throughout some of a fair few of the Tales games. I think that was the same with the Blastia in Tales of Vesperia. But instead of human suffering, I think it was like spiritual suffering. But one of the other characters, Prisea, a little 12-year-old girl who is actually 28 because she had such awful experimentation in the name of this, uh, this crystal research that it just stopped her aging and got rid of all of her emotions. Oh, no. So... Her story is that she goes, she joins your team, to not only to defeat the evil angels, but also to get revenge on the guy who uh, put her into this program because she was looking for her sister that he uh, mutated into a big pickle monster as well. <laughs> These are just a few of the characters and they're all interwoven in such a seamless way throughout the entire story that you can just, you can go off and you can do like a little side quest to explore one character's story come around, do a little bit more, go on another character's story. And it just it just meshes together so well. And as you're doing these side quests, you're building like uh, hidden affinity values with each character, which affects different cutscenes. The story focuses on Lloyd mainly and his journey to bring about this, this idealistic world free of racism, etc. against the half-elves and a place where everybody can live and all the rest of it. So he's the main constant in the game. But as you're building friendships and building affinity with different characters, one character in one cutscene might stop a spell or like, you know, get in front of a, like a sword with their shield. They have no real bearing on the story, but playing through the game several, several times just to try and do all the multiple choice things a little differently to see, oh, will Prisea block um, this, this attack against Lloyd this time or will it be Genus? It's silly. It, it doesn't have any bearing on the story, but it just adds a... Just a really lovely little bit of replay value. The last thing I want to talk about is the music. Oh, standard. Yeah. Matoy Sakuraba. Oh, is he at the door again? <laughs> yes, he is. Yes. <laughs> and he's here to tell us about his lovely music. It flickers between like really morose synth pop for the angelic areas, which is sort of, it, it, it's, an, it's an upsetting and empty world that these angels have built because they think that if everybody becomes sterile and lifeless that's the way to achieve a world free of racism as opposed to celebrating everybody's differences and working together for the good of a peaceful world they just want to make everybody the same and the music in their levels it really reflects that it's it's really lovely but it's just echoing it's it's empty but you do get a sense of they really believe what is right it comes through in the music just mm, masterfully there is one last thing that I want to talk about. I was doing a little bit of research last night, just, just refreshing my memory. And I was watching some of the cutscenes again. And in order to reunite the worlds, you have to forge a pact with Origin, the leader of the summon spirits and the master of all things. Oh my. To do that, you have to kill your dad, Kratos, because his, his life essence is bound Origin's seal. Right. So you, have to, you, you kill him. He releases Origin's seal. And he, and he, he, he rises out of the ground and he says, I have lost faith in all things. Have you come to disappoint me as well? And then there's a few minutes of, of back and forth with Lloyd talking about his, um, his idealistic vision for the future. Kratos comes in and uh, says, I thought that our plan was the right way to do it, but trust in Lloyd Origin. He pulls out his swords and says, let's see your power. I'm ready to believe once again. Ooh. You fight him, it's a boss fight, it's great. And as soon as you hit the final blow, it just goes silent. It goes, extraordinary. I will believe in all of you. And I'm not, I'm not 
ashamed to admit, I had a little cry at that. It's an immersive, emotional experience. It lasts fucking ages. <laughs> it's my favorite video game of all time. I haven't played the sequel because I've heard it's utter shit and I don't want to taint that memory. <laughs> Tales of Symphonia is my favorite video game of all time. Yes. Wonderful. Brilliant. Well done. Lovely. What I really enjoy, I'm, I'm not the JRPG person. No, I've played... Not. I could count them on one hand the, mm. the games I've actually finished. But I, I would love to watch you play them mm. because you enjoy them in such a different way to how I even <laughs> approach it when I try or the games <laughs> I have played that you're able to get much more out of the, the writing and the stories and the characters and then on from that, the sort of the systems of actually playing it and maximising how you're just taking down a game. Mm. And, and I think that would be really enjoyable to see the way you actually start afresh and work your way through that process because I'm not able to do it. So I, I could live vicariously through your enjoyment of, mm. a, of the Tales franchise or, or any other game. Thank you very much, Minty. Of course it was a JRPG. Of course. Of course it was on the GameCube. Of course it was Tales of Symphonia. Are you ready for mine? Uh, just about. I am. I'm steeled and girded. My favourite game of all time. Contrary to Minty, it's actually quite against trend, I think, from the rest of my list. It's not a Nintendo game. It's not a handheld game. It's not even a console game. It's an out-and-out PC game. It's a game that not only redefined its genre, it redefined the whole concept of PC gaming. And not only that, but it, it also redefined the way that we were going to consume video games. It changed the industry forever. And it was a genius move on behalf of Valve. Oh to launch their Steam platform, essentially, with this game. Because if any game was ever going to make you fully invest in an entirely new digital way of buying, owning, and playing games, it was going to be Half-Life 2. Oh. <laughs> I forgot this game existed. <laughs> well, be before good we thing. begin, I'd just like to take a rewind to a moment where you, Chris, uh, you shared your opinion on the contents of the Orange Box, which is a uh, collection containing Half-Life 2, its Episode 1 and 2 expansions, the uh, multiplayer game Team Fortress 2, and your 84th favourite video game of Portal. all time, which was Portal. And, uh, and this is what you said. He's got receipts. <laughs> <laughs> and although Portal started life on the PC, I think it got a far bigger audience once it was ported as part of the Orange Box to the PS3 and the Xbox. For me, at least, I, th I think it's the best game in that collection. Interesting. I know people kind of have real reverence for, for Half-Life 2 especially. But it felt so different to its contemporaries that it, it stands alone for me. Whereas, you know, Half-Life 2 does loads of things right. It's a, a fantastic kind of like narrative first-person shooter. I think Portal does more with kind of the form and like I said, sort of exploring the, the conventions of what a first-person game is that Half-Life obviously doesn't do the same way. Um. <laughs> Sitting on that for two years. Yep. I mean, I kept my pejorative feelings uh, majoritively uh, to myself at that moment as you sort of casually cast... I mean, I would say substantial disdain across the greatest game of all time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think there's something about the first person shooter genre that makes it, in my head, almost like the definitive genre for a video game, which is, I don't really know why. I mean, perhaps it's because of like, like Doom in many ways being the archetype for you know, the medium, possibly because, I don't know, maybe I still regard PC gaming as like the apex of the format, even though I've never 
ever class myself as a PC gamer. And it's strange because those presumptions do not align with 99% of the, the games I chose to spend my time playing. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's also possible that it's because I don't think that that genre or gaming on that platform has bettered the gaming experience that I had with Half-Life 2. To start off with, I mean, the game is a it, it's a technical masterpiece in, in that it, it could run on such a wide variety of machines. Like I was always surprised when I got a game that could properly run on my computer, even, you know, when we got new PCs and more powerful ones, I, I, I knew I would always be several steps behind the custom gaming PC scene. But to have a game that looked as good as Half-Life 2 did running on my machine, I mean, that was just a real win. And I think a lot of that comes down to, it comes down to the brilliance of the source engine that's obviously at the core of the game and provided the core to many other games and mods that came after. It was such a silky, smooth experience with crisp, detailed graphics, and it was all brought to life by just, I mean, the most stunning art direction. It felt extremely different to the original Half-Life, and it felt like they'd developed a game straight out of my own head as well, because that was like a time when I was really discovering my love of dystopian fiction. I'd been reading books like A Clockwork Orange in 1984, and I was discovering films like Tarkovsky's Stalker or 28 Days Later. And the art direction and aesthetic in Half-Life 2 was exactly how I saw 1984 in my head. It had like the same color palette, the same totemic monolithic buildings, the oppressive tone, the sound of surveillance all around you, and you know, the bubbling of rebellion under the surface. And this wrapper for the game made it so unbelievably engaging for me, even more so than, you know, the single Black Mesa setting of the original Half-Life, you know, gone with the monotonous grey walls and the endless filing cabinets and crates. Instead, we just had the most brilliantly detailed world from, from top to bottom, these crumbling ruins, the alleyways, just the, the foliage overrunning some of the, uh, you know, some of the man-made structures, the characters, the enemies and the monsters. The story of this game is absolutely wonderful. I mean, it feels fantastic to step into the shoes of Gordon Freeman, who is an absolute badass. It's r ridiculous. He is uh I mean, the fact that he is just a research scientist that has now become this warrior hero through the, uh, you know, the events of the first game. And this game is actually set 20 years after Half-Life 1, which is something I didn't actually realise until I was researching. <laughs> I was researching the game. Like the events of the first game saw a science team accidentally open a portal to an alternate dimension. And that event attracted this multidimensional empire called the Combine, who then came to Earth conquered and enslaved humanity. Dreadful scenes. <laughs> but then uh, Gordon Freeman, who's actually just been like, I don't know, just like suspended in stasis for 20 years. He's awoken by uh, this character called the G-Man, who is perhaps my all-time favourite video game character. He's this incredibly mysterious, enigmatic figure. He doesn't have a name. And he's sort of pulling the strings around Gordon. But you don't know if he's real or imagined or if he's existing in some sort of higher realm i i don't know you also don't know if he's like benevolent or malevolent all through the game and indeed actually all through the first game as well if you keep your eyes peeled you can just catch glimpses of him just Ooh. interacting with events and like meeting with people like if you turn and look at a bridge just at the right time you can see him like meeting with somebody or you can catch him like on a security camera like going into somewhere or like in the reflection of a door you can see him there 
he's just he's fascinating to just think about and think about his place and his purpose in the events. And the game Half Life Two it opens with just a phenomenally brilliant piece of dialogue from him, which just sets the tone. He just says, "The right man, the right man in, in the, the wrong, wrong place, place can, can make, make all, all the difference, the difference in the world." Wake up, Mr. Freeman. Wake up and smell the ashes. Oh, yes. I'm in. And he then drops you into City 17, which is where the game's set. And that's the city where the Combine Citadel is. And uh, you find the underground resistance. And it's great because, like, Gordon has sort of become this, like, urban legend amongst the troops. Uh, this sort of mythical figure, almost. And, yeah, it's just great to pick up the crowbar again. Uh, <laughs> be this daredevil with a doctorate. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll touch on some of the locations in the game and I've reined myself in from giving a full blow-by-blow -blow account of every single set piece in the game. You'll be pleased to know, but I do want to touch on a couple of the set pieces and scenarios that were just so, so excellent. And there's no better place to start than Ravenholm, which is one of the scariest places I've ever been in a game and in real life, to be honest. It's it's so it's so brilliantly set up. So you're, you start... Well, you're in this rebel sort of base with Alex, who's the uh, sort of main supporting character in the game. And you pass a corridor that leads to this nightmarish abandoned town inhabited by all manner of horrors. She just simply says, we don't go to Ravenholm. Then as you're on your way back past this corridor a little later on, the ceiling collapses, blocking your planned exit, leaving you with no choice but to go through <laughs> Ravenholm. And as you step foot in that direction, the text just comes up. Chapter six. We don't go to Ravenholm. It sends shivers up my spine just thinking about it. It is just, it is absolutely brilliant. It's terrifying. It's amazing to experience. There are some extraordinary set pieces in the game, like trying to outrun a combine hovercraft whilst you're on a speedboat, sort of going down the canals, trying to dodge like falling chimneys and towers and bombs. There's this brilliant section down by the coast. You like follow this coastal pass to uh, some sort of fortress called Nova Prospect. But as you're going down this like coastal path on, on, on the sand and on the beach, if you step on the sand, you'll summon these like horrible parasitic spider things like called ant lions. It means you have to like carefully choose and lay out your path so you can cross safely without touching the sand and uh, probably like floor is lava stuff because otherwise, you know, you'll, you'll summon these creatures and they just, oh, they're everywhere. But then you end up fighting the, I don't know if it's like the queen ant lion, but it's certainly a, a massive one. And when you kill it, you end up harvesting its pheromone sack from its, I mean, I guess it's bits. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, just lop them off. Up in them guts. Yep. And, uh, and, and, then, and then it allows you to basically to, to, to carry it and you can throw what's called like bug bait then, which is like parts of it, which will then summon a horde of ant lions to attack for you. And they'll just like attack whatever's in its path. And I love that sort of reversal of a game mechanic. It's like in, in, you know, in Metroid when like you'll have to kill a boss and then you'll get its ability. So in fighting the boss, you see like the full potential of what that ability can do. And then your victory for getting through it is then getting it and reversing that power. And I think that's just, it's just, it's, I love it. I love that. I think it's so clever. And then there are some like, Big climactic fights in City 17 where you and some of the other like renegade soldiers are trying to take down these War of the World style tripods, striders. It's just a phenomenal spectacle and just so well balanced because you feel just exactly the right amount of fear and panic and struggle and then relief on the other side. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. There are also so many 
just superbly written characters in the game that you come across and interact with and, and none more so than Alex Vance who I mentioned earlier she's like the main supporting character she's the daughter of Eli Vance who was a scientist in Black Mesa and Alex accompanies you for a fair amount of the game and she's just she's just incredible like she's a fully formed character she's got an amazing character arc there's so many complexities to her and the performance of all the characters in the game are fantastic. Uh, reading up about it, I know that the the AI and the technology behind non-playable characters, that was like a real key focus in developing the game. And, and it shows because it's such a huge step up from anything I'd seen in a game before. It gets the, the emotional and characterization so well with the technical aspects of how it's animated and how it comes across, combined with superb writing that, yeah, we've had superb writing in games before, but to get that level of humanity and, and to sort of get the right details that sort of conveys that as the, you know, as the priority, it, it's so, so well done. And I think it's, it's, it's exactly the right balance in terms of like story and gameplay, you know, I've criticised this before in games that feel like they're trying to be too cinematic. Characters will be hyper-realistic and events will be hyper-realistic and you'll end up having to control the most like minute of details so that it's almost like the games can sort of show off and say, look, you can even you can even do this. You can even like control which eyelid you blink with or something. <laughs> and it's like, that's actually, you know, you cross a line at some point between actually what's then a good gameplay experience and what is immersive storytelling. And I think Half-Life 2 is something that gets the balance right. And there's a very key element to why that is, I think. And that's because pretty much for the entire game, you never don't have control of your character. Mm. Even when there are essentially cutscenes or parts where you're just in a room and characters are talking for bits, uh, you know, for story or exposition, you can just stand still and watch them and listen to them, or you can just run around the room or <laughs> jump, jump, jump around on them or, you know, like pick up something on the desk and throw it at their heads. It doesn't, it doesn't, weirdly, it doesn't, you know, that sort of interacting with the, with the environment doesn't, doesn't change how it plays out. It just plays out. But, you are always in constant control of your character, which means that you don't stop. You don't get a break from that engagement. Like there's never a moment where you just like take your hands off the controller and sit back and watch something unfold. Mm -hmm. And that is more engaging than the most beautifully animated, hyper-realistic cutscene. It's a brilliant way of just keeping you connected to the character because you are constantly connected it, it's brilliant as an aside there's another example that sort of occurred to me that actually straddles the line slightly differently which was um the recent god of war and there are times in that game where you are when you're not in control of, of kratos and you know he's walking through a cutscene or a cinematic or something but brilliantly that game is presented as a single continuous shot so the control is woven seamlessly in and out of those cinematic moments. And because the camera literally never leaves Kratos, you have that same constant connection with him. You never mm. leave him, which is absolutely brilliant. And that's just like a really like, it's the first time I felt that feeling of like Half-Life 2, where you just have that constant connection uh, with a character, which is brilliant. But I mean, the thing that Half-Life 2 gets right above all of these incredible visual things and technical elements even above the brilliance of the story and its deeper lore, is the gameplay. Like, the game is incredibly fun to play. It's absolutely joyous. And 
so much of that comes back to the source engine. Like the way that physics works in the game was at that time, unlike anything I'd seen before, like before, you know, stuff would get thrown around or like stick to the floor. Bodies would fall downstairs while maintaining just a rigid prostrate pose. (laughs) But now everything sort of moved and worked properly. Like barrels and stuff had buoyancy, ramps needed to be weighed down. And like the ragdoll physics that were at play in the enemies were so, it was entirely unrealistic. But every flailing limb and flip and flop of all of their like appendages as you chuck them around, it was unrealistic, but also to the point where it felt realistic it's a, mm. it's a strange thing to try and it's a heightened <laughs> realism you know because it com- it combines like this sort of graphical comically over the top stuff with you know real life physics that makes you aware of how malleable the world is around you because mm. it is slightly exaggerated i mean the thing that valve had the wisdom to do was to employ these new technical elements in the game in ways that weren't just showing them off for what they were but actually put them at the core of making new ways of having fun in a game. You know, the physics were employed in puzzles, meaning you had to like carry things to make platforms float in the water so you could run across it or build a ramp out of rubble and debris so you could drive over a security gate. And I think the heart of that and that enjoyment was the thing that I think is possibly the main reason why I love this game so much, and that's the gravity gun. The gravity gun is it's funny. Actually, when I was writing the notes, it kept auto-correcting it to the gravity fun, uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, which you know is actually applicable because they may as well have called it that. You know, it's just it is unbelievably fun to use. You can pick up anything and fire that anything wherever you want. You know, from picking up bits of debris to help you, you know, solve puzzles, or picking up like a computer on a desk to fire it at somebody's head while they're talking, or pick up, you know, like a chair to like try and then block in like a, a head crab coming through a, a vent. Or something that's brilliant is in Ravenhome, you pick up like rusty saw blades from like a workshop and then just like fire them through like a whole line of zombies just slicing them and it's just like or like if like an enemy's throwing a grenade at you if you're quick you can pick it up and throw it back at them (laughs) and it's just the the, the fluidity and flexibility of the physics engine everything just worked so well like i said it's not realistic but it wouldn't be as fun if it wasn't just slightly heightened realism Mm. it just made everything just a bit more extreme and a bit more fun and just so enjoyable and like they even hold the true power of the gravity gun up its sleeves for the final section of the game where the gun is then super powered. So the one thing you can't pick up and manipulate in the most of the game is enemies and humans. Mm. Right towards the end of the game, you get the gravity gun super powered, which means you can then manipulate enemies and you can just like come up against an enemy, grab its leg and just like blast it across an abyss as it's like flying around. And it is just, it's so much fun. It's silly and it's fun and i mean it says a lot about the quality and the versatility of this engine that something like gary's mod was a thing because that was just a brilliant sandbox toolkit to generate and manipulate and exploit anything you wanted in the engine uh, just to the ends of making just extraordinary scenes and just hours and hours of fun <laughs> the game got dlc which is a bit mad because i think that was still a time when companies were experimenting with DLC and expansions, what that meant, and also in terms of how they were distributed. It was great to get two pieces of DLC. Like, it extended the story and the world. You had episode one and episode two. Episode two especially was really, really great, because episode one sort of saw you 
essentially deal with the aftermath of the end of the game and sort of how you got out. And then episode two is sort of, you see what's happening beyond the walls of the city. And, you know, you saw what was happening kind of more in the wider world outside. And there were brilliant evolutions of the story, proper emotional stuff as well. It really warranted making the episodes, you know, the story was that good to go, actually, yeah, no, it was worth it just to get to these points in the story. Valver, they didn't need to make them, you know, in the same way they they haven't, like, caved to the need to make Half-Life 3 or any sort of big sequel to any of their <laughs> yeah. games. So, you know, it means that, like, episode one and two, it's like they didn't just half ass some extra gameplay to cash in. You know, they gave the story, like, a properly full ass expansion. <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't got around to playing Half-Life Alex, which is the VR prequel to Half-Life 2. It's the reason why I, I, I wanted to get a good Oculus headset, but I do need to link it to a computer and get that set up and, 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 and going and, and find the time to do that because I know that it's going to be incredible. I can't wait to spend more time in that world and with those characters. Half-Life 2 is... I care so deeply about the story and the characters in it. Like It's a setting and a world that is so engaging to me the quality of the game's engine and the gameplay, it just makes the entire journey so unbearably fun to play. I mean, I literally cannot think of a more perfect game. It's it's the perfect example of a linear game experience. It's a brilliant demonstration of what video games offer as a medium and how that medium can be used to tell a story. I'm, I'm so, so happy that we got episode one and two to broaden the story a little bit more. I, I can't wait to play Half-Life Alex, but I've never really been one of those people clamoring for Half-Life 3 because I can't see how it can be improved upon. I'll happily replay Half-Life 2 over and over again and get, I mean, everything I really want from video games just from that experience and playing that one game. It's incredible. It's my favourite video game of all time, Half-Life 2. It's a, it's a big one, isn't it? Mm. And that I forgot existed once I talked about it yeah. in passing. <laughs> in the Orange Box, I never played it, really. I, I played the first... 10 minutes maybe and that was it for Half-Life 2 so my my exposure is very very limited behaviour like that while you lost the quiz <laughs> stop bringing it up <laughs> we can have a blanket ban on social media do not reference the quiz sounds like a decent game <laughs> just give it a go so there we have it. You have heard us talk about just shy of 300 games over the last uh, three years that we absolutely flipping love. It's been <laughs> an absolute delight talking week in, week out with these two fantastic chaps. And it's just been great to just to wallow in the brilliance and wonder of video games. I, I can't believe that we finally finished our countdowns, but I, I'm also so, so excited for what comes next and the future of O3C. As I said at the top of the episode, uh, we're going to be taking a little break for a few weeks, but then we will be back with a vengeance and, and presumably with an episode. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully of the same uh, level of quality and hilarity that you've uh, become accustomed to and, and quite frankly deserve. But we will not be disappearing. We will still be very active on our social media channels where you can reach out to us to chat with us about anything, to be honest, about video games, about the podcast, about yourselves, uh, about what you'd like to see feature on the future of the show. We'd love to hear from you. If you head over to our Linktree page, you can find links to Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram and Twitch. Linktr.ee slash O3C podcast. You can also find links to all of those things on our on our website. At uh, the moment, it's our3cents.co.uk. Very soon, it's going to be o3c.games. And you can also engage with us personally. Target us on a one-on-one tete-a-tete level. On Twitter, I am at Jonathan Dunn. I have 
remained at Chaz underscore Hodges. I'm still Clement underscore Boo. And if you fancy getting even more involved with the podcast and want to gain access to the O3C Discord server to be at the forefront of the future of the podcast, then head over to patreon.com slash O3C podcast. Pledge a few pennies our way, whatever you can afford or whatever you think we deserve. No, whatever you can afford. (laughs) I think that'll work out better for all of us. But it would be great to have you aboard the Discord and we cannot wait to engage with all you lovely listeners going forward. But until we return, we shall bid you adieu. Good health, good luck, good gaming. And thank you very much. Goodbye. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Hey guys, you know what's better than video games and beer? Cat videos? Be Arthur? Incorrect! Nothing! The answer is absolutely nothing! Alright, alright. You know, actually, I do think you're right. Agreed. We're here at the Dogcast. We podcast about video games and beer. And beer and video games! Available weekly on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Be Arthur. Yes. <laughs> and we're back, folks, with another episode of Nasty Labs. Nasty Labs. It's a show hosted by me, Kinsey Burke. And my dumbass friend, Mark. This twice-monthly show about game development, Japan life, being nice to people, and hey, maybe a few other things. Nasty Labs is a product of Chuhai Labs Brand Incorporated, and now available for three easy payments of 4 dollars only on the Greenlit Podcast Network.